0: listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Every week we open God's Word, and this In this season at South Point, we're going through the book of Daniel, and so if you would um, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9 this morning as we um, look at this uh, prayer of Daniel, this prayer of confession, right in the middle of some really strange things that are happening, Daniel has been giving us in the first six chapters this uh, narrative that has been giving us a description of the things that he's been going through in his life. Essentially, the first six chapters of Daniel are given to us to help us verify who this guy is beginning in Daniel chapter 7 that's going to be sharing some really strange things with us, some prophetic things. So the book of Daniel is broken down into this biographical section, this historical section, but then this forward-looking section that we call apocalyptic literature. We've already gone through Daniel chapter 7, we've gone through Daniel chapter 8, but before we really get into the hairy stuff of Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse number 19, Daniel, it seems like, calls a time out, and all of a sudden, he decides that he wants to enter into this lengthy prayer of confession. You see, the text is going to tell us that Daniel has been reading Isaiah the prophet and as Daniel has read Isaiah the not Isaiah Jeremiah the prophet Jeremiah chapter 25 Jeremiah chapter 29 as Daniel has been reading Jeremiah the prophet what he's found out is that the when the Babylonian kingdom ends that the captivity of Israel is going to end you see Daniel and Israel they're in Babylonian captivity they violated the covenant commands of God God said when you violate the covenant you're going to go into captivity and Babylon is going to rule over you in that Captivity is going to last for 70 years. So here they are in Babylonian captivity, but Babylonian rule, Babylon has fallen. So Daniel knows that this time of captivity is coming to an end. But what he comes to realize as he thinks about what's happening among his people, he's realizing that his people went into captivity because of their sin The purpose of captivity was to wean them off of or to break them from their sin. It was a curse for sin. And when the captivity is over, they're going to go back to their land and they should be a new people going into the land. But what Daniel has realized is that in these 70 years, the sinful heart of the people of Israel hasn't really changed at all. So he grieves that. In other words, he's not concerned about the land that they go into. He's concerned about the people that are going into the land. And those people are not ready for the freedom that they're going to experience because they haven't dealt with their sin, which put them into captivity to start with. And so Daniel, after going through dealing with all the things that he's dealing with with Nebuchadnezzar and after going into the lion's den and after now giving us these visions and these dreams of all the things that are going to be happening in the future... Daniel stops and says, man, my heart is so heavy. My heart is so broken for my people and for their sin. I want to pray. And he prays. Daniel chapter 19 beginning, or da, excuse me, Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse number 19. In the year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, a mead, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So there again, I'm reading, I'm reading Jeremiah. I'm looking at what's happening historically and I recognize our 70 year captivity is coming to an end. Verse three, then I turned my face to the Lord God seeking him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to, to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, to those who are near and to those who are far away, all the land to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. We have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it was written in the law of Moses, all the calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. He's saying we haven't done that. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. This is important, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Let me just give you four thoughts this morning, four simple words. The first word is situation. What is the situation that we are looking at? I've already described that briefly, 70 years of captivity that hasn't had the desired effect on the heart of Israel. They're fixing to go back into the land, and they're going back into the land pretty much as the same people that left the land, except there have been 70 years of captivity, captivity, and they have not picked up what God was putting down for them. That is the situation. And so here Daniel is in a visible lament. He is in a visible lament. Here Daniel is saying, we are in trouble. Here Daniel is saying, we have no hope but the mercy of God. Don't miss that. We are in trouble. We have no hope. And so Daniel is pleading for mercy and he's so intense in his focus that he's fasting, that he's going without food, that he's putting sackcloth on. Sackcloth, when you put it on, it is an irritant and he wants to have that irritant so that he can be stirred up to pray. He's putting on ashes because ashes are indicative of complete ruin. He is showing remorse. Daniel gets it. Israel is in a mess and Daniel's heart is broken over their collectively, his and their sin. Daniel's not calling in past performance. Daniel's not saying, "Hey, remember when I was in the Lions Den and I was so great and you showed up? Remember when Nebuchadnezzar was trying to get me to eat the the, the T-bone steaks and and all of the high carb food and I said, "I'm just going to eat vegetables, God." Do you remember when I took a stand for you, st- stand for you? Do you remember when everybody else was bowing down to the image and me and Shadrach and and Meshach and Abednego all stood up and said, "We're we're not bowing down to that image. We serve one God." Daniel's not reminding God of how amazing he is and what all he's done for God. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I tithe. on why, why aren't things working out for me? Right? He's not calling in anything that he has done. He's not calling in past performance. He is crushed. And he is fearful. Israel is oblivious to their sin and its consequence. And the lack of impact that captivity has had and their utter unpreparedness to return to freedom and the land that God gave them has shaken Daniel up and pushed him to this place of desperation. That is the situation. The situation needs to be seen in light of what God has created for us. We can go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and we can see that God has created us to be in fellowship with him. He has created us to be in communion with him. He has created us to be in this fellowship and in this love and in this community with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That is what you and I were created for. Please understand that. Your brain was created to be in communion and in fellowship and in relationship with God. Your body was created for that. Psychologically, emotionally, everything about you and me was created to be in fellowship with God that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So let us see this prayer. He's saying this is what This is what was and this is what should be, but we have abandoned all that God has done for us because we think our sin is better. Secondly, we need to see this in light of the impact of 70 years of captivity. You see, they quite frankly have just adapted to the culture that's around them. They haven't dealt with their sin They are unchanged, they are unbroken, they are unrepentant. Seventy years of consequences for their sin has not driven them to grief or godly repentance. They are not internally crushed by their sin or changed by their consequences. And so Daniel, I think, is fearful and prayerful for his people. The truth of the matter is we're just like them. We are no better off than Israel is. We trifle with our sin. We minimize our sin. We do a terrible job of dealing with our sin. (laughs) And quite frankly, that's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. Now, he didn't come so you could stay in your sin, so you could frolic in your sin, so that you could stay in your idolatry. And Jesus came to show us a better way, and he is the better way. He is better than your sin. And so that is the situation that they find themselves in, and quite frankly, that's the situation that we find ourselves in. The second thing we see is not only the situation, but before Daniel dives into this prayer of confession, he takes a minute in verse number 4 to spend some time adoring who God is. He just stops, time out, I'm going to recognize God, sort of like Jesus did in Matthew chapter 6, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right. So he stops for a second, albeit very briefly, and he reminds himself of who he's talking to. He's talking to Almighty God. How does the text describe God? The text describes God as a God who is near. I love verse 4. He said, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession to him saying, Our Lord, the great and awesome God. But he says in verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord. Now that's critical. This turning of his face to the Lord, the turning of the people away from God and then saying, God, would you turn your face back to us? And would your face shine upon us all the way through that? This is critical to what is happening in the text as we understand confession. But here's his description of God. I'll give it to you briefly. God is immanent and transcendent. God is close yet different. God is personal yet he is immense. We understand that the text of scripture tells us that God comes near yet God is holy. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. There is this in inestimable vastness and weightiness to who God is. He is glorious. Don't miss that in the text. And at the same time, it is this glorious God who has come near in his Son so that he could look us in the eyeball, so that he could crawl up on the cross as a human being and die in our place for our sin. Secondly, he tells us in this text, as he's, as he's describing God in verse 4, that he, is, that he is fearful, yet he is faithful. God is so vast and awesome and powerful and holy that we should fear him, but he is also a faithful God, and we've sung about his faithfulness this morning. He is great, and yet he is good. He is to be adored and worshipped and rejoiced over. All rightful prayer should put God in his rightful place and we should recognize him for who he is and i promise you when you pray if you will take just a minute to recognize who god is before you get into what you need before you get into what you want before you get into maybe trying to kind of manipulate him and twist him to do exactly what you want him to do if you just stop just a minute and recognize who you're talking to it'll change how you talk to him it'll change how you see your situation it'll change everything about you. So we see the situation, we see the adoration, verse 4, and we see the confession, verses 5 to 15. I want to take a minute and look at the confession because as I was thinking about confession... I just looked up the word confession because I've got the word situation and I've got the word adoration and I kind of wanted to have a word that would kind of flow with that. And so I looked up the word confession into thesaurus so that I could come up with a word that would go with situation and adoration, but I couldn't find one, so I just put what was in the Bible, which is confession. And if it doesn't fit what you think a good sermonic outline should be, I'm sorry. But when you look in the thesaurus and you see a synonym for Confession, you also see antonyms for confession, and I thought that's interesting because I think most of us don't live in the realm of confession or even any synonyms relative to it, but I think most of us live in the antonyms of confession. Here are the antonyms of confession. Denial. Denial. Concealment. Concealment. Secret. Cover. Hide. I think that's what we do with our sin. And probably, more times than not, the more religious we are, the more skillful we are at anti-confession, the more skillful we are at denying and concealing and covering and hiding. Whenever we see super spirituality, we can almost always rest assured that it is a cover up. Whenever we run to the closet and grab the mask that says, I've got it right, I've got it together, and we just restart that mask of self righteousness, there's probably something really bad lurking in the shadows. That's not confession, that's the antonym of confession. Genesis 3, I already mentioned Genesis 1 and 2. This is what God intended for his people. But in Genesis 3, the fall of man, we move from creation to fall and we see the fall of man. We see in Genesis 1 and 2, everything is beautiful. Every need is graciously and glorious supplied. We are satisfied in who we are in Creation in, in our relationship with God, and our fellowship with God, and our love relationship with the Trinity. But then Genesis chapter 3 comes along and Satan moves in. And Satan, first of all, causes Eve to doubt God's ability to satisfy her deepest needs. Has God really said? Does God really care? Are you really cared for by God? Does God really care about you? Is God telling you everything? Doubting God there is more and God's not giving it to you there is something that you need that God is not supplying the temptation then is to take control of your own life God said there's one tree I don't want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and Satan comes, God's holding something back from you. What is he holding back? He's holding back the very thing that he told me not to partake of. That must be the thing that I need. And nobody's going to tell me which doggone tree I can or can't eat from. Be aware or beware when nobody can speak into your life. When you're just going to eat from any doggone tree you want to eat from when your attitude is nobody is going to tell me what to do so they doubted god god wasn't enough they took control of their own lives and ate of the fruit of the tree and then they ran from god this is what we do in our sin we run from life to death we believe the lie that there is life in sin and life with God is really deadsville. But if I can just go have some sin, I'll feel alive. And what they were literally doing is they were running from life which is found in God alone. And they were running to death. They were running from peace to chaos. They were running from unity to Violence and the unexpected consequence that they did not calculate in the equation in the bill of goods that Satan sold them was that once they did their own thing and ate from any doggone tree that they wanted to eat from, is that all of a sudden now, as soon as they ate, they began to feel guilt and shame. And we were not made for guilt and shame. In fact, if you go to Genesis 2.25, the last word of chapter 2, when everything was great before chapter 3 when satan moves in and deceives adam and eve it says that adam and eve were naked and unashamed they were fully exposed and known for who they were nothing was hidden and they were fully accepted by each other naked and unashamed they knew everything there was to know about each other they were not hiding anything from each other and they were not they had no shame they had no shame But sin comes and now there is shame and now there is guilt. And one of life's greatest questions is what am I going to do with shame and what am I going to do with guilt? And the answer is I'm going to do whatever I need to do to avoid the impact and the weight and avoid being identified with guilt and shame. I'm going to do whatever I need to to do. I was not built for shame. I cannot carry shame. Shame is crushing me. Shame is debilitating me, and I must avoid shame at all costs, even if it means completely reinventing who I am. So what do we do? We run into the forest, and we find leaves, and we start covering ourselves. Big leaves. We cover ourselves to hide our shame. What do we do with shame? First of all, we We mask shame. We mask it. We create a hypocritical covering that gives me control of how I am perceived. It's self-righteousness. Listen to yourself. How do you describe yourself? How do you talk about yourself? How do you present yourself? Yourself? What do you want people to think when they think about you? And we create this mask that creates an image that will control how people see us. That's our response to shame. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what they're doing in the garden with their fig leaves. And so we put on our mask and we run out into the world and we say, Would you please compliment me and tell me I'm okay? Because without the mask and without the fig leaves, All I'm left to deal with is the shame, and that just doesn't feel okay. It never does. We were driving up to North Carolina last week, and I called a friend of mine. I won't say his name, um, but he he was at our church in Jackson, and um, the Lord called him into the ministry, and he went to seminary, and then we sent him off to a a friend of mine's church up in uh, North Carolina, and he's been serving up there for uh, a long time. And so we were talking, and he said, uh, "He said, you know, one of the most exciting things that has happened to me since I've been here is I've become the chaplain of the local college baseball team." He said, "Man, I love it." He said, "It's such," he said, "It's such a relief." He said, "You know," he said, uh, "He said these 17 and 18 year olds," he said, "He said they're just what you see is what you get. They don't, they don't." They don't wear a mask. He said, and he's on staff at a church full time. He said, you know, being at the church, he said, everybody wears a mask. Everybody wears a mask. And that's, I'm afraid to say, more true than not. What do we do with our shame? We mask it. Probably more times than not, the most spiritual people, people that you think are the most spiritual are the people that wear the best masks. Secondly, not only do we wear masks, we mask it. What do we do with our shame? Secondly, we develop a strategy to make life work. What did Adam and Eve do? God said, where are you? That's important. Where are you? Adam, where are you? They're busy trying to cover up with leaves, and finally they work their way out. And he's like, what in the world have y'all done? That's the worst outfit I've ever seen. Who's your designer? Like, we are. We're we're, we're in the mask business now. We don't want to be seen for who we are. Right? Well, well, tell me what happened here. Let me tell you what happened here. Satan. The devil made me do it. Flip Wilson. Some of you don't know who Flip Wilson is. The devil made me do it. Well, okay, the devil made you do it. What about, what about Adam? What, what, what Adam, I left you in charge, dude. What happened? The woman that you gave me, she made me do it. What is this? This is a strategy. This is a strategy for coping with shame. It's a strategy that deflects shame away from us. And we come up with these strategies that we want people to cooperate in. And it's usually a strategy where we're in control, where we are above, where nobody can blame us. Thirdly, thirdly, when we hide shame, we control narrative. We want to control how we are seen. Fourthly, when we hide shame, we project image. When we hide shame, we are trying to avoid impact. We are trying to avoid identity with sin. We lack humility. That's what we do. Please notice I said we. This is is common to humanity. And most of us aren't aware of it. We hide shame. We self-justify. That's what Adam and Eve did. We create strategy so that we can be in control of life. We control narrative. We project image. And as long as we control how we're seen by others, we think we are okay and we're not. A pastor visited a hospital and he heard heard an elderly woman who kept repeating, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. The pastor thought he would take this opportunity to maybe share the gospel, maybe be kind. He says, well, if you die, you're going to to meet God, so you need to start praying now if you're going to meet God. And he said, pray this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The woman said, I'm not a sinner. And if you knew me, you would know that I wasn't. And that's where the fall leaves us. It leaves us in sin, and it leaves us in denial, right? It leaves us in sin and it leaves us in denial, wearing our mask, coming up with our our ever-exhausting strategies. But there is good news. And the good news is the question that God asks in Genesis 3. He says, where are you? In in other words, God could have said, "Where? where did Adam and Eve go? They're gone, okay. I'll just go Create somebody else. What is God doing? God's chasing them, chasing them down. God is pursuing them. God is running after them. And he's saying, where are you? And where are you is the Jewish way of inviting us to confession. That's why we're in Genesis 3. When God says, where are you? It is his way of inviting us into confession. Where are you is the story of the Bible. Where are you is the proclamation of the gospel. It is a holy, loving God pursuing sinful, rebellious people. And he says, Where are you? And you can say, I'm okay, I'm covered, I've got fig leaves, I've got masks, I've got strategies, I've got scenarios, I'm 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 good, I'm religious. Whoever is asking, Where are you? is The person who really loves you. How are you answering that question? Where are you? Here is is the God of love coming to Adam and Eve and saying, Where are you? If your answer is a sin covering answer, you're only hurting yourself. Where are you? If your answer is a sin covering answer, you are only hurting yourself yourself. Our hiding behind our mask doesn't really fool anyone and prevents us from being fully loved. Whenever you project an image that is not who you really are, it is preventing you from being truly loved. You see, the the reason we think we need to put a mask on and project an image is because we think in our guilt and our shame that nobody could ever love us. So we put on a mask to say, I'm going to be somebody that I'm not so that I can be loved. But there is a God who is coming after you and me that knows who we really are. And he says, where are you? And he doesn't want a religious answer. And he doesn't want some fake answer. He doesn't want a hypocritical answer. He wants us to tell him where we are in confession it is when we are willing to come before him as we really are that we can then be fully loved. But if you and I are walking around with with masks and strategies expecting people to love the mask and love the strategy and thinking that we're going to be okay, we're not because if we are not fully known, we will never be fully loved. And the longing of our heart is to be loved. It just is. And so he cries out where are you and we should say I'm in a mess I'm a sinner I'm broken and I'm hungry but what I've been eating is not filling me and I'm thirsty and what I've been drinking hasn't been quenching my thirst and I'm alone And the folks I'm around, they don't even know me. All they know is my mask. And he's like, why don't you come home to the Father? Why don't you come home to the Father? I know you, and I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you so that you could feel my love for you and that we could do life together. It's it's with that anti-confession that we now understand Daniel's confession because most of us are just going to hear these words and maybe even say them while at the same time holding on to this value system of anti-confession. What is Daniel saying in his confession? What are the components of Daniel's confession in this text? First of all, Daniel identifies sin. Secondly, um, Daniel experiences the impact of their sin. Don't don't miss that. Saying, oh, I sinned, I'm sorry. It's like a hit and run. It's like a hit and run. It's like you're driving down the road, like you just backed into somebody's car. You get out, you look at it, and you're like, man, I just tore your car up. I'm so sorry. See you later. Wow, that was scary. No, that guy's got 4,800 miles on his car. I hope nobody parked too close to mine this morning. That's all I've got on it. It takes me 15 minutes to find somewhere to park. It just does. My wife will find the junkiest car in the parking lot and pull right up beside them on the line. I'm like, I don't want you messing with my car. It's going to impact me deeply. Take me weeks to get over it. Sin is much worse than backing into somebody's car, but we, 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 want, we, want, to, we want to sin and we want to act like there's nothing to it. All right, I'm, I'm sorry. See you later. No, no. There is this this impact. And so, so Daniel goes through these words in the text and talks about what has happened. And he is feeling the impact of the sin of his people. And he really is longing for his people to feel the impact of their sin as well. I think it's a beautiful thing as well that Daniel, probably one of the greatest guys in the history of humanity, is identifying himself as a sinner in the midst of all of it. He doesn't put himself above his people to look down his nose at them, but he's identifying himself as a sinner. So what's going on here? What is Daniel confessing? First of all, he identifies their sin. We will never experience the impact of sin if we do not take the time to name it and name it as ingrained within us. It's not something we did. It's something that is a part of the fabric of our character. Sin is never getting into a car, closing the door, and saying, I'm done with it, and I'm going to get out of it, and you leave the sin behind. That's not the way sin operates. What is Daniel confessing? Listen to what Daniel is saying. Let me just give you some bullet points of what he is saying. First of all, Daniel is saying, we have turned our back on you, God. That's what he's saying in the text. We turned our back on you, God. We went somewhere else to find what only you could provide We believe the lie of Satan. We have turned our back on you. We have turned away from a gracious, loving, creator God. Secondly, here's what he's saying in the text. Here's what he's confessing. You spoke to us and we told you to shut up. You spoke to us and we said, God, why don't you shut up? Whenever we don't listen to God, we are saying, God, why don't you shut up? Look in the text at the number of times he tells them they didn't listen. Thirdly, you told us not to and we did it anyway. You told us not to and we did it anyway. That's scary, you know. I was I was with a two-year-old yesterday, and um, every time everything I told her not to do, she she did exactly that. I'm like, why don't we move your water away from the edge of the table? You can still drink it from here. She takes the water at, at two years old, much smarter than me, and moved it back to the edge of the table. I, I don't care if she spilled it on the floor. I just didn't want it on my clothes. Right? Right? God has has spoken to us in his word and we like two-year-olds say you told us not to and we did it anyway. We are guilty of doing everything that you told us not to do. That's what he's saying in the text. That's what Daniel's saying about himself and his people. Fourthly, he's saying we have rebellious hearts. We are defiant. We are defiant. We are defectors. We are deaf. We do not hear. Fifthly, here's what. Daniel's confession includes, we looked everywhere else but to you for our satisfaction. We looked everywhere else but to you for our satisfaction. That is idolatry. We looked everywhere else but to you for our satisfaction. We saw your love. We heard your law. We looked at it and we said, you know what? I see it and I'm just going to cross over it. As though it didn't exist. We looked everywhere else but to you for our satisfaction. What is the impact? So so here Daniel is identifying sin. What is the impact of sin? Sin destroys relationships. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with each other. All you have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3 to understand that. But you also have to look at a people who have been in captivity for 70 years who have been unimpacted by the captivity that they're in, unimpacted by the consequences for their sin. And what you're looking at is a, a people, and there are probably three or four generations of people that exist within that 70 years based on those who may have come in old and those who may have been born and probably two or three birth cycles in that. You're looking at several generations in these 70 years and none of them are responsible responsive to the truth of who God is and what he has done for them or to the consequences of their sin. Our sin is not isolated with us. Our sin impacts other people. It impacts our relationships. It destroys families. When we sin with and against people, we become incapable of genuinely relating. When we sin with and against people, we become incapable of genuinely relating. Why? Because we then, in our sin, have a utilitarian view of people whereby we use them, whether it is to get them to love us or to use them for our satisfaction or to use them to commit violence against them. All we have is not the relationship that God intended for us to have with people, but we have this relationship that views people as... Utilitarian people are something that we use. The impact of sin is that sin destroys relationships. The impact of sin is that sin destroys our conscience. The impact of sin is that sin drives us to turn truth and reality on its head. The impact of sin is that I think I'm getting life when I'm really getting death. The impact of sin is guilt. The impact of sin is shame. Which if shame doesn't drive us to the cross. It will always drive us to masks. And we will constantly be getting getting fitted with a new one. One of two things to do with shame, Genesis 3. We can either run and hide and put on a mask to cover how terrible we think we really are so that we can control how people perceive us. Or we run to the cross where Jesus died in our place for our Sin, So that we wouldn't have to be these people that are crushed beneath guilt and shame. But we can be set free because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Daniel's confession, he identifies with the sin of his people. He put himself among. He uses the word we, us, or ours at least 25 times in this text. Daniel is, in all of his greatness, in all of his magnificence, never says that he is above the sin, the worst sin of his people. And here is his nagging concern. One commentator said this. Here is the source of his distress. Daniel's distress. Israel has a history of rebellion rebellion and idolatry and has suffered God's judgment for it, but it has not driven them to godly grief and genuine repentance. What concerns him, it seems, is not so much the return to the land as the people who must return. What good will it do to have people back in the land with no sense of their sin and no exercise of repentance? We have never been crushed in spirit, who have never been crushed in spirit over their idolatry. It is not Israel alone. Humanity itself is averse to admitting sin and guilt. What good is it going to do to go back into the land with a people who are not coming to grips with their sin, not coming to grips with their guilt, not coming to grips with their shame, and not running to God in confession? What good is it? And he say none. Having the land, having everything that's back like it was 70 years ago, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter if we have not dealt with our sin, Daniel is saying. Finally, Daniel makes this petition. We see it in verses 16 to 19 as he closes out his prayer. And one writer said that Daniel's uh, petition is a pleading, it is a begging it, it, it is it is it is staccato. He's saying he's saying there are these short phrases, and it's almost as though Daniel is so overcome with emotion as he prays and as he cries out to God that that he's out of breath, and as he as he gives these short phrases, he's he's got to take in some air to breathe because he's so overwhelmed with his sin and the sin of his people. Basically, in verses sixteen to nineteen, here's what God here's what Daniel is saying. What is at stake? This is his petition. What is at stake when when the people of God sin? What is at stake when the people of God sin? Here's what he's saying. What is at stake when the people of God sin is the reputation of God? What is at stake when the people of God sin is the reputation of God? Now, and we don't we don't get that. We're worried about the consequences, we're worried about getting caught, we're worried about getting exposed. We're worried about what people might think and what is what is at stake when the people of God sin is the reputation of God. You say, where, where do you get that from? Go back to verse 15. And now, O Lord, our God, you brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself. As at this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Look at verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from Our city, Jerusalem, no, your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your name's sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. For the sake of your glory, O God. Yahweh's reputation should be the driving concern behind our prayer. Yahweh's reputation should be the driving concern behind our confession. Hear and answer this prayer for the sake of your reputation, for the sake of your glory, so that your weight might be felt and your name might be great. Call out to God in the depth of your sin. Confess your sin, not as an act of manipulation or penance, but because God is a God of great mercy. There is no place else to go in our sin but to God. You can't work it off. You can't can't fake it and get by. You can't deny it. There's no place else to go but to him in confession with our sin. There's no place else to go. There, listen, there is no solution to our sin but to go to him and confess it to him. There is no solution. You can wake up tomorrow morning, you can turn over a new leaf, you can try harder, you can be better, you can you can make oaths, you can make promises. But quite frankly, at the end of the day, there's no other option but confession. That's what Daniel is saying for himself and for Israel as he confesses his sin to Almighty God. Let me give you some points in conclusion and then a final word before we take communion. First of all, our situation is no different than Israel's. And I would plead with you today as I have felt conviction in my own heart as I've poured over this text and sat alone in the office and stood over here this morning thinking about what I had to say. What would happen if we as a people would just become a confessing people? A people who are confessing our sin. Thank you, Richard. Somebody's listening this morning. It would radically transform Everything about our lives and everything about this body. What would happen if we would be a people who would confess our sin? Whatever your situation, please hear me. There is a God who is near. And if he isn't near, it's because you've turned away from him. And in this text, we see Daniel turning toward God. And I would say if the Spirit of God is at work in your heart this morning and drawing you to himself... Turn to him this morning. Turn to him this morning. Whatever your situation, there is a God who is near and his name is Jesus. And no matter how bad, he is enough. But now listen to me. He and he alone is enough. We don't bring anything to it. He and he alone is enough. Jesus lived a life we could not live. And he gave us his perfect righteousness. Jesus died our death for our sin in our place. And said you are free from your sin if you are in me. And Jesus rose victorious over sin. And we just need to call upon the name of the Lord and say Lord would you save me. Not because I'm good and not because I'm trying hard. But because Jesus paid it all. Whatever your situation. There is a God who is near and his name is Jesus. Thirdly. Have you ever confessed your sin? Have you ever named it? Have you ever experienced its impact? Have you ever identified yourself with it? Or was it like backing into somebody's car in the parking lot? Just saying, oh, oops. Sorry. Sorry. Don't have a backup camera. Whatever. Fourthly, are you more concerned about your reputation or God's? Are you more concerned about your reputation or God's? Fifthly, the body of Christ should be a mask-free zone. In fact, let me take it a step further. Your mask will kill you. Your mask will destroy you. Someone has written a book. It's called The Hidden Cancer in Our Churches. And the conclusion is the hidden cancer in our churches is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy will destroy the church. Hypocrisy will destroy your family. This should be a mask-free zone if Jesus Christ is Lord of this body of believers. Number six, there is a fountain flowing with mercy. That's what the text is telling us here. Because of your great mercy. I, I'm, I'm standing up here today telling you that if you could just imagine this, this, this river that is just flowing. It's just flowing. And, and it's flowing and it's just merciful. And, and you're standing on the bank. You're just, you're just looking at it, right? We're looking at it. But, but I'm saying today that I want to go stand in, in this, this mercy river. There is, there is this, this, this river of mercy. There is this overflowing fountain of mercy. It is the great mercy of God. Would you come stand in it with me? Would you come stand in it with me and let us worship him? There is a fountain flowing with mercy for all who will abandon themselves and their sin and fling themselves upon his mercy. He invites you to fling yourself, to fall. Come dive in. I'm reminded of... Of Peter and they're out on the boat and he's like man we're going back fishing this Jesus stuff I just can't handle it this ministry stuff I can't handle it this kingdom stuff I can't handle it I'm going fishing and when Peter recognized that Jesus was on the shore I don't know what he was wearing but he didn't have his outer garment and I don't know what an inner garment is but he probably didn't have much on and he probably didn't care because he knew Jesus was waiting for him and he forgot, about everything. he forgot about everything. He forgot about everything that he'd done. He forgot about everything that he was going to suffer in the future. He forgot about everything. And he drops it all and he runs to Jesus. There is a, there is a river of mercy that is flowing. And the invitation is for you to come and stand in it. As we come to partake today, I want you to remember what Christ has done. I want you to remember that there is a place that we can go that sin can be dealt with and it's the cross. Why do we say the cross? Because we just like cross beams, you know, beautiful symbol that everybody wears around their neck no matter who they are or how they live or what they believe. No, the cross is the place where Jesus suffered and bled and died. He was a sacrifice. And we come and we take the juice that represents His blood and we take the bread that represents His body and we say, I identify with Christ and what He has done for my sin. I believe in Him. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to turn to Him, His finished work, His finished work. So I remind myself of that. But I also want you to come today knowing that there is a place that we can bring our sin there's a place that we can come and confess. And and all that we identify with and all of the impact that we experience is absorbed into all that he has done if we will bring that to him this morning. One final quote, one writer said this, what distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. Let me say that again. What distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. Camp goes on to say the church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. We see this beautiful prayer of confession that we have taught to us. That we have modeled for us. That we have the opportunity. To enter into. What's going on in your heart this morning. How has the text of scripture. How has the spirit of God. Impacted your heart. I hope today. That you and I can come. And feel the weight of our sin. And the impact of our sin. And let it move us. Not to more guilt and shame. But let it move us to confession, where we can take off our masks and come before one who sees us as we are and loves us anyway and recognize that the love we've been looking for all along is found in him and him alone anyway. Let's pray together. Lord, bless us as we look at Daniel's distress, as we look at him pleading, Crying out to you. Not because his people are being mistreated. Not because they're in a strange land. Not because the temple has been decimated. Not because the city walls have been torn down. Not because the land is desolate, not because their fields have been torn up, not because their economy has been destroyed. He's in distress because the consequences of their sin has not moved them away from their sin. And I pray this morning that you would help us to examine our own hearts. I pray that we would not only see and feel the weight and the impact of our sin, not only on ourselves, but on others. And I pray that we would run to you. But I, but I pray, Lord, it wouldn't be like, it wouldn't be like we're giving up something valuable. It would be like we're giving up something worthless. It would be like we're standing in the worst thing we could think of standing in. And we're invited to come and stand in a stream, a stream of mercy. And I pray that everyone here today would hear that invitation. Would hear your invitation. Come unto me all ye that are just worn out. That are just tired. That are are laboring and are heavy laden that are weighted down with the laws and the rules and the righteousness of the Pharisees. Come to me, Jesus said. I pray that we would come to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I invite you to come this morning to communion.